Good evening, Rifters. This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, Morris on Riftwake. And today we're here to talk about movement. Movement is a really, really broad topic. So today we're going to focus more on the actual mechanics of of moving and traveling and that kind of stuff and not about encounters while traveling that will be another episode in the future so how do move with your legs yes that is the first way although not necessarily the only way but i'll get into that fun stuff later on yes every character has a movement speed that will vary from 25 feet for dwarves and gnomes and such to 30 feet for most of the regularly sized humanoids like humans and tieflings and half elves up to 35 feet for those speedy speedy elves so in combat you only have so much that you can do on a turn so your movement is one of those you are able to move a distance equal to that speed that is on your character sheet. However, there are a number of ways actually to modify that. So the most common of which is the dash action. So as an action, you can increase your movement speed. So actually, we briefly touched on this in the combat episode. And honestly, I didn't phrase it very well there. So I want to make sure I get it correct this time. So when you take the dash action, you gain extra movement for the current turn of an amount equal to your speed after applying any modifiers. So I mentioned before that it doubles your speed. And while that's technically true, that phrasing is important because there are characters such as rogues or monks who have the ability to also dash as a bonus action. So if you dash as your action and dash as your bonus action, if it goes by the doubling phrasing that I mistakenly used before, that would imply that you quadruple your speed. And that is not the case. When you use the dash action, you increase your speed by the amount. So if you have a 30-foot movement speed and dash as an action and as a bonus action, then you are increasing your speed by 30 feet and increasing your speed by 30 feet. So you would have 90-foot speed, not 120. But what is also nice about doing such a thing is you do still get that boost after applying modifiers. So if you have taken the mobile feat, one effect of that is that your base speed is increased by 10 feet. So besides that, there is magic applicable. Uh, There's a lot of magic items that help movement in some way or other but let's just use the spell haste for this argument so in that situation you have the mobile feet and the haste spell so mobile increases by 10 feet so increase from 30 to 40 haste does say double your movement speed so in that situation you would then double from 40 to 80 as your base movement speed while that spell is in effect. So 80 feet and then dash action 
and dash bonus action if you have that class feature available. So 240 feet total potential movement using all of your actions to do so. Damn, that's a lot. (laughs) So that is not necessarily the absolute highest it can go, but then you're getting into a lot of nitty gritty details and we prefer to generally stay more general than that. So moving on. While you're not in combat, that base speed is used for the calculation of how much speed a group is able to travel or the travel pace. So travel pace. There we go. So you're able to pick three options for your pace when you are out of combat and just going. So generally speaking, your pace is affected by the lowest speed member of the group, but there are some modifications available. So if you do have slower party members there, then generally speaking, that 25 feet is the number used, although practically speaking, because most beings average at 30, most DMs tend to use that 30 feet as the number when determining travel pace. On the other hand, a lot of DMs just don't bother with travel pace because very few DMs actually have a quantified enough map to know, ah, yes, it is precisely 126 miles to get from here to here along the path. So therefore, it would take precisely this amount of hours and minutes that's generally just not done because, in general, DMs don't like excess math. Yeah, and it also could create, like, basically, certain additional pieces of work that the dungeon master has to do for something as simple as, oh, going from place A to B. Yeah, but I'll go over it now anyway, just so that the information is out there, because I'm a rules guy and that's what I do. And I am one of those crazy dungeon masters that does have a map detailed enough for that, because me. So with that normal 30 foot base speed, to calculate the distance per minute is pretty easy. A round of combat is considered to be six seconds, so they actually just extrapolate out from that. So 10 rounds would be 60 seconds. So 30 times 10 gives you 300 feet per minute, the normal pace. And it just gets multiplied out from there. So distance per hour, three miles. So you can see the pattern here, I'm guessing. 30 feet, 300 feet a minute, three miles per hour. So you just take your base speed and just divide by 10 gives you your speed in miles per hour. So if you have an elf with a speed of 35, then they could move three and a half miles an hour. If you have that speed demon we were talking about a few minutes ago. So they're moving, what did I say, 240 feet? So they would be sprinting at 24 miles an hour. Damn, good on them. Wait, I think that might actually beat Usain Bolt. Anyway, irrelevant. But yes, they're faster than the fastest human runners in our world. Now, 
on the other hand, while traveling, it's generally considered that a march for a group is eight hours a day. And you can go beyond that, but then risk exhaustion. And exhaustion is another thing that we'll probably cover more in detail in a future episode. But to sum up, you get slowed down or disadvantaged on things and eventually die if you get too much exhaustion. So, yeah, exhaustion bad. But anyway, it's still not hard to necessarily go beyond that initial eight hours. You just have to make a con save with a DC of 10 plus one for each hour past eight. So for a properly built party, it's very much doable if you do need to push yourselves. (sighs) But generally speaking, eight hours is the assumed amount of time for travel. So if you assume that normal pace of three miles an hour, then on average, a party will go 24 miles per day, which is really respectable. Adventures are in good shape. I could not walk 24 miles in a day. I would die. There's a big question actually in D&D, a little tangent, but worth mentioning of why aren't more people adventurers if the pay is potentially so good? And it is, but it's because adventuring is hard. If you tell a person, oh, yeah, you could get this job. You don't need any qualifications, but it does have a 80% mortality rate and requires you to walk 24 hours a day on average every day. No, thank you. Uh, I'll pass. That. Also, for some odd reasons, like bad things just happen to their relatives or friends. No, that's just you because you're a dick. Let people be happy, man. Anyway, back to travel. So that is the normal pace. Three miles an hour, 24 miles a day. You do have the option to travel at a faster pace or a slower pace. And there's just a bit of trade-off between them. So if you go faster than normal, then instead of going at three miles an hour, you can increase to four miles an hour, which will come out to 40, or sorry, 30 miles a day. However, traveling at that speed creates a negative five penalty to passive perception checks. So you are a good bit more likely to not notice things on the side of the road or things that are going after you. So whether that extra speed is worth it is up to the party. Or on the other hand, you can choose to move at a slow pace, where instead of three miles an hour, it's two miles an hour and 18 miles a day. And the upside of traveling at that slow pace is that you're able to move stealthily for that entire time. Now, there is a big modifier that can happen for short and long distance travel, which is something called difficult terrain, which is summed up by the fact that the world is not going to be flat all the time. There's stuff in your way. There's going to be forests and swamps and ruins and mountains and all of that dangerous stuff in the places that adventurers tend to go. So 
to move in difficult terrain, you move at half speed. So moving one foot in difficult terrain costs two feet of speed. So all of those measurements of how far you're able to go are just cut in half in difficult terrain, which considering makes sense. It's hard to walk through a muddy swamp or through a steep or up a steep mountain. That is hard. And honestly, the fact that it's only half speed could be argued to be the game actually being rather generous because there are definitely things that could slow you down more than that amount. So I mentioned all of that when talking about the normal travel pace when you're walking. However, you don't need to walk. There's other options out there in the world. You can ride a horse or ride in a carriage pulled by some kind of beast of burden. I mean, if you have the type of game where such things exist, you could even ride a Pegasus or something or get rooms of flying to just avoid the road altogether. And what's nice is that creatures such as horses are, generally speaking, going to be a good amount faster than most humanoids tend to. Again, unless they do have one of those crazy speed builds. But a horse in general can have a speed of 60 feet, which would mean double all of the usual measurements. So it would be six miles an hour and then 48 miles in a day. However, little known fact is that horses in particular actually have a thing mentioned in the player's handbook under the chapter eight adventuring and then subsection mounts and vehicles that most people just don't know about, which is that a mounted character can ride at a gallop for about an hour, covering twice the usual distance for a fast pace. So that would mean that in the event of chase situations, someone with a horse would potentially be able to go. Let's see. So that would be six miles an hour normally. So eight miles an hour at a fast pace. So 16 miles in a single hour. So technically speaking, if you have a group riding horses and just gallop for one hour, going 16 miles gets you two thirds the normal eight hour walking distance on foot. So that could actually have some interesting implications in game. If you have a group that's not in a particular rush, you could just gallop for an hour and then just end your travel through the day and then just use those hours for downtime activities. Depending on what time, what type of game you want to run, you could use that to still let your party travel, but still give them opportunities to have more downtime, to craft things or expand their knowledge on something. So it's just a fun idea. Because honestly, a lot of the time players are very much in a rush to get to their next destination and actually giving players downtime can be really hard. <sighs> so besides the more typical mounts, there's also vehicles like, let's say, a sailing ship. So if you're on a ship with a 
with with a proper sized crew, then they act in shifts and then can sail for 24 hours. And being a vehicle, you don't have to worry about exhaustion like you would for a mount. So if you're able to travel on a ship, let's say that you're even on one of the slower ones. So you have a vehicle with a speed of three miles an hour, then that would be 24 hours a day for a creature. But you would then multiply it by three for the three shifts. So you would have a far greater daily travel rate than you would necessarily over land. So that sums up general travel. So let's move on to more specific types of movement. All right, to start, climbing, swimming, and crawling. Any of those three things cost one extra foot of movement. So one thing to keep in mind then, that means that let's say you're crawling through thick mud. So it's crawling and difficult terrain. So that would mean that it costs an extra foot for crawling and an extra foot for difficult terrain. So instead of being at half speed, you would be at a third speed. Thankfully, it's not multiplicative, so it's not a quarter. It's just, quote unquote, a third. So a 30 foot typical speed would be only able to crawl 10 feet in thick mud. So when you do have to climb or swim or crawl, there are ways to negate the difficulty of that, at least for climbing and swimming. Unfortunately, I am not aware of anything that makes crawling easier. That's just not a fast type of movement. But at least for climbing and swimming, there are class features and magic items and spells that negate that extra foot of movement by giving you a climbing speed and a swimming speed that allows you to just do those things at your normal rate of movement. And generally speaking, when you do have to climb or swim or any of those extra types, you don't need to do an ability check because you're just able to do that type of movement at reduced speed. But if there's a situation with a significant chance of failure, that's the situation when there might be a check required. So if you are climbing something slippery or something incredibly steep that is hard to pull yourself up, then the DM can ask for an athletics check. Or if you're swimming in rough water, that's a thing that is much more difficult than swimming somewhere calm. So again, athletics check. (sighs) Unfortunately, now we move on to uh, what is arguably the most complicated type of movement and the one that I dislike the most. Uh, We'll see if I get angry enough for a Remy rant shortly. (laughs) Jumping. So there's two types of jumps in D&D 5e. There is the long jump or the high jump. They are considered to be completely separate things in terms of the distances. So for the long jump first, you need to make a 10 foot running start and then you're able to jump a number of feet up to your strength score. And if you make a jump Without a running start, half that. So half your strength score is the amount you can jump without running start. 
Also, during the jump, each foot you clear costs one foot of your movement. So a jump is still considered to be using your movement. So when you make the long jump, it mostly disregards how high is your jump. However, it does mention that the DM can choose to have them roll a DC 10 athletics check if there is a low obstacle that is no taller than a quarter of the jump's distance. And if they fail that, they hit the object. Also, if you land in difficult terrain, you have to make a DC 10 acrobatics check to land on your feet or fall prone. So that is one of the very few things that actually uses your full strength score instead of your modifier. The reason that I dislike the jumping rule so much is that it is a specific number of feet and it is not a multiple of five in any way, shape or form like everything else is. It is uneven numbers, which irks me. So let's say that you have a character with an 18 strength. That would mean that when they run, they make their jump after 10 feet and then are able to jump a distance of 18 feet. And just the unevenness of that, especially if you use a grid normally, is annoying because it's more math for me as the DM. Uh, Moving on, though, to the high jump. You can leap into the air, a number of feet equal to three, plus your strength modifier. And you once again need to make a 10-foot running start or else have that number. So again, using someone with 18 strength, that would give them a modifier of plus four, which would mean they can leap seven feet into the air with a 10-foot running start or three and a half feet just standing. That's a crazy jump. Once again, proof that all D&D people are superhuman by our standards. Anyway, uh, there is also a mention for the high jump that you can extend your arms above your head when you do a high jump. So the total distance of how high a thing you can reach or grab onto would be whatever your jump distance is, plus one and a half times your height if you have your arms stretched up above your head. So with that seven foot leap for, let's say, a six foot tall person, so arms up, they could reach nine feet plus the seven. So 16 feet up, a person with 18 strength would be able to grab onto something. That is an insane number. Unfortunately, there is one other part of jumping that I do have to mention that is somewhat complicated, sort of. Jumping uses your movement, so I briefly mentioned that. However, where it gets complicated is that there are multiple types of magic in the game to boost your jump distance, generally a multiplication of times three. So why that is complicated is that it is mentioned that you can only jump up to your movement amount and that anything higher than that carries over to the next turn. So if you have the jump spell, let's say, that multiplies by three, so 18 strength with the 10-foot jump, 
or the 10 foot run up. So 18 times three. That's not easy math off the top of my head, which again is part of my problem. Uh, 18, 36, 46, 54. Okay. So 54 feet plus the 10 foot run up, which would mean a total of 64 feet moved. So if you're a character that only has 30 feet of movement, that would mean they run 10 feet, they leap, they move 20 feet and just are in the air just during the next round. And then once it's their turn again, they continue the next 30 feet of the jump and are just in the air while the next round of combat happens. And then another round passes. And that last four feet on the third turn, they finally land and have 26 feet of movement left for that turn. That is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Like, that is the way the rules are written. For me as a DM, if you have a magic item that boosts your jump, I would just say, okay, if you jump, you're able to just jump that distance. Fine. That's the benefit. And just to make it stretch over potentially three turns and using up all of your movement for two of them is insane to me. But Again, that is absolutely in DM control. You can go by the rules as written, or you can just put some logic in your fantasy. Your choice. So I mentioned that there are magic items that help with traveling, and there are a lot. So I'm just going to mention a few useful slash fun ones because, well, because this is my podcast and I can. Well, sorry, this is our podcast and I can. The coup has begun. It's just like Nathan dies. (laughs) I had no idea what happened. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't tell you before, but I'm taking over. It's mine now. Oh, yeah. Sign over to me, that'd be great. Yeah. No, no, that's easy. This is our podcast and I can say what I want to. So starting off, the boots of speed. Uh, Rare boots requires attunement. As a bonus action, you can click the heels together to double your walking speed. And any creature making an opportunity attack against you has disadvantage. And you can click your heels together again to end the effect. And when the boots property has been used for a total of 10 minutes, the magic ceases to function. So this is just a flat doubling of your speed, which is always fun. So by doubling your walking speed, that normal 30 feet once again becomes 60 feet. It is only usable for 10 minutes a day, but if you're in more than 10 minutes of combat a day, then you should have a talk with your party and your DM, because that's a lot. Uh, Moving on next, the boots of striding and springing. That is just a hard one to fit lengthwise on a character sheet, but is a very useful item. Again, uh, requires attunement, but is an uncommon item, so potentially more easily available. 
And while wearing the boots, your walking speed becomes 30 feet, unless your walking speed is higher, and your speed isn't reduced if you're encumbered or wearing heavy armor. In addition, you can jump three times the normal distance, though you can't jump farther than your remaining movement would allow. So again, there's that stupid limitation of how much movement you have. I would just delete that, but your choice. But the fact that it just makes your movement speed 30 feet makes this very useful for dwarves or gnomes or any slower race character. And if your DM does allow the more logical jump rules, having a dwarf, let's say, that can just jump massive distances is really funny. And I would appreciate seeing that more. I would say, all right, um, in regards to all this movement stuff, when it comes down to it, as per usual, the rules are a guideline for you to put stuff in perspective and help you better come up with numbers when there's a situation where someone wants to do something extraordinary. But generally speaking, for ease, uh, most people just more or less make their own decisions unless it's something that they aren't quite sure of, in which case use the rules. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I should probably say this enough, but for all that I love the rules of D&D, and I do, there are problems with them, which you have heard me rant about numerous times by now. But rule zero of Dungeons and Dragons, before anything else in the game, the DM is in charge. If the DM of the game you're playing doesn't like a rule, they are fully within their authority to make the rule whatever they want it to be. They can edit it, throw it out, ignore it, or use it as it is. The DM has ultimate authority at the table, and that is absolutely a power I recommend using when you come across things that you disagree with. Anyway, just a couple more items and we'll wrap up. It would not be appropriate if I were to not mention one of the most classic items of fantasy. The broom of flying. Exactly what it sounds like. It's a wood broom that you can fly on. If it can carry up to 400 pounds, but if it's more than 200, only at a speed of 30 feet. But if it flies carrying less than 200 pounds, it's got 50 feet. So this is an uncommon item that does not require attunement. So if you just have one of these brooms with a light character, and let's say, oh, someone like Minrith that has the sharpshooter feet that gives a longbow a reasonable range of 600 feet. If you just have them sitting on a broom of flying, sniping down below, it is damn near impossible to kill such a person. Honestly, it's one of the easiest, cheap, combinations in the game so as a dm i would hesitate to put too many people out there because it's honestly not fair because very very few people have anything that could even reach 600 feet <laughs> on the other hand if you want you could even build a character to almost be a big bad on a small scale of just there is a there is a sniper who has a broom of flying and everyone hates that jerk and everyone wants you know to collect a bounty on that guy that just grows as the campaign goes on so could you use it absolutely should you use it maybe 
And of course, on the other classical items list, the flying carpet, or in D&D terms, carpet of flying. There are actually a couple of variations of the flying carpet for D&D, which is interesting. Basically, you can have a large family-sized carpet that flies slower, or you can have the smaller Aladdin-sized carpet that is extremely fast. So for the smallest one, it is three feet by five feet in size. It can only carry 200 pounds, but it gets a flying speed of 80 feet. Also, a point of interest is that for any items like the broom of flying or carpet of flying, because they are objects that are doing the effort of flight, then the exhaustion rule for eight hours doesn't apply because it is not you putting effort into walking that distance. So technically, you could spend your entire 16 hours awake flying and cover extraordinary distances. Anyway, there's a number of items more that do lots of effects to affect movement in some way or other. Falling. Falling is a type of movement that I should talk about a little before we finish this. So when you fall, every multiple of 10 feet, you take 1d6 bludgeoning damage up to a maximum of 20d6. And that is considered max damage. So interestingly, also in Xanathar's, there's a mention that if you are falling from a great height to figure out what is the distance, it's said that you fall 500 feet around. So 500 feet every six seconds is terminal velocity for the typical D&D world. So it is so very easy to die from falling damage, especially as a lower level character. So if you just fall 30 feet off a roof, then that 3d6 damage could potentially be enough to kill a level one character if they're unlucky. So there is a magic item, the Ring of Featherfall, that is automatic and forever, doesn't need charges, but just does require attunement. Just when you fall while wearing this ring, you descend 60 feet per round and take no damage from falling. That is a heavily underestimated item. It is extremely useful, and through my years of D&D, I have had a number of characters not die because of that item, and a handful that did because they didn't have it, which was sad. So... To sum up, there are a lot of different types of movement in Dungeons and Dragons and a lot of magic to modify it. But in general, I use in general too much. In general, I use in general too much. Ugh, words. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tiers start as low as a dollar, and even that really helps us out. Supporters get benefits, such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord, we'll be able to chat with the cast, and even a shout-out on the show. Find us on social media, on Twitter, at Riffwake Podcast, on Facebook, at Riffwake, and on Reddit, on the subreddit, r slash Podcast. And now, send us an email, riffsandrules, at gmail.com. 
That's riffs, A-N-D rules at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.